Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Tina. And this is Zoe. And this is Gaia. And we are the Devils in the Details, an Exorcist TV show fan podcast who are all totally obsessed with The Exorcist, and it's the best show in the world. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> so. Yes. <laughs> Just a heads up to everybody listening. Uh, this will have spoilers for the entire first and second season. So if you have not watched, go watch it now. We're going to say that every single time because it's an amazing, amazing work of art. Go watch it. Uh, today we are currently rewatching and discussing episode two. Um, I'm not even going to pretend to say it. So Gaia, please say the title of our episode. <laughs> the title is Lupus in Fabula. So what we're discussing, this description of this episode is that Father Marcus is joining forces with Father Tomas. We'll also see the Rance relationship with the demon and how it's uh, deepening even further. We'll also see a lot of the, uh, the ritual killings will begin as well. So as we do in our episodes, we're going to be deep diving into the critical scenes, which again, in preparation for this, for the second time in a row... <laughs> I've tried to really pinpoint critical scenes, but we have about 112. So (laughs) starting the first one we are discussing is that opening scene, which again is just, uh, it's a great, great opening. We see the Marcus as an orphan. You don't know that at first, but uh, that's where you you really see a a big part of his upbringing. So what do we want to say about this opening? It's a very intense opening. I like the fact that each episode really does open on intensity and you see these traumatized looking young boys. You have no idea what's happening with them and like, where are they being led? Why do they think they're failing? Why do these priests keep thinking that one of them will somehow sort it out? And it's all framed in all these shadows moving in and out of the frame and all the earth tones. And it's a mm-hmm. very colorful in the fact that it's very vivid orange and browns and you know, something earthy and gritty is going on. And then eventually you get into the shadows and out obviously faces the demon and this boy doesn't freeze like the other ones. And that's why, you know, it's Marcus because this boy has conviction and he doesn't have a look of fear. He's going, I found my calling. I'm going to face this thing down. Oh, absolutely. He is such a little badass. You can even, even the actor, whoever they chose for him was like, good God, this guy is amazing. He just faces down that demon with like no fear in his eyes and just like, this is what we're going to do. Just uh. Yeah, he finally has a purpose in life. He knows what he has to do and he is going to do it until the last breath is left in him. You can see it in his eyes. Yeah, again, that character creation where they really want to make him someone that you fall in love with and fight for and say, yeah, like this guy has gone through some real crap yeah, in his life. evil and um, literally stood up to it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, even because it's not the first time he faces evil, he saw the evil inside his father. Nothing else is going to traumatize him like to see his father killing his mother. This is just another form. Right, right. He's like, I've got this. Like, give me what the worst you got, demons, because yeah. <laughs> nothing's going to beat, yeah, shooting my dad in the face. So, um, Well, excellent. Well, then we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about that Casey in the kitchen scene. We, after this scene... That's the first time that we also see Casey in her in her demon voice and in her um, you know very innocent garb that she's wearing her her little pajamas and 
what were our thoughts on that? And especially on the rewatch too. I saw things that I didn't see in that first one. I immediately noticed the color palette change because we've just gone from all these lovely browns and earth tones to this is gray. This is desolate. And as the episode progresses, you notice that their house doesn't have a splash of color in it. It is all grays, all various tones of gray. Yeah. And it's just like, it's so cold and empty and distance. But yet you feel like Angela's absolute fear because she knows what is happening and she immediately recognizes a demon in her daughter and but also has the intelligence to go they need proof at the church because I know this from when I went through it that I have to record this because no one is going to let an exorcism happen unless I have the proof oh my gosh yeah and I have to like <laughs> when I first watch it I was like well, props to her for having the wherewithal to record this thing because I wouldn't have even thought about that. But because she had gone through it, she's like, I need proof because the church is so they're big on their check boxes. You have to make sure that they're not, it's just not just a psychological thing and you're not just crazy, but to actually record and say, look at this. This is like, this is disgustingly yeah. demonic. Do something that about it. Do a very good job of recreating that idea of young, innocent girl acting in a sexual manner that is just not befitting of her persona because obviously in the film that she does terrible things to herself with a crucifix this is television they yeah. couldn't go quite yeah. that far but you get every ounce of something dark and dirty inside a young innocent girl just the way that she touches herself and is going all young and supple and delightful and you're just like that, that's not right that is not that is not a good yeah. thing happening there yeah Yes. Like props to, well, I don't know how she, what the directive, the acting directive was, but if you look closely at her face, it's almost like her hands are controlled by a puppeteer. Like it's not her yes. hands. It looks like somebody else. Cause she's so still, her face is so still and it looks so terrified, but her hands are just like slowly creeping up like her neck yes. and her body. Like it, it, it has this feeling of an invader and, 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 a, and a, like a, a gross sexual yeah. way. And they are exactly in time with uh, the demon's word. It's not her in control. It's not Casey. It's the demon. And her hands move at the sound of his voice because we see Casey speaking with another voice. Okay, so we're also talking about the phone centipede scene. That's the only title that I, I can come phone up with here. Actually, it was you, Zoe. Phone centipede. This is all you. Oh, well, this, this actually happens. We, we just, because obviously the original scene leads into um, Tomas talking to the auxiliary bishop. And yes. so we have, yeah. we have the direct, like, Angela's obviously sent in the video going, look, my daughter's possessed. Um, help me. And auxiliary bishop is just like, no, 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 pretty boy. You sit there, be the face of the church. We're giving you all these like lovely opportunities. Don't mess it up. Look good. Do your nice young hot <laughs> priest thing. You know, no, don't worry about exorcisms. It's all not. I just won't like listen to him in the slightest. And he's just like, but, but I can offer so much like, like more than this. And right, just totally right, get right. any like, yeah. It's just not, the auxiliary bishop does not want to hear about it. The church does not want to hear about it. Nothing possibly creepy could be going on until <laughs> poor Angela comes home after receiving weird, mysterious voice like, like call going, oh my goodness, Casey's calling me. No, Casey's not calling me. Apparently, a horrific centipede has called me. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we talk about this because it's not, 
you think it's a centipede calling. <laughs> I love that your cartoony brain is like the centipede is the demon and is like picking up the cell phone and going like, "Have you checked the children?" Or whatever. Yeah, basically, time. what's your favorite scary movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's. I like to imagine that it is just the demon power that's able to control the telephone. Lines I always just thought it was a demon in centipede form. <laughs> How does he push the buttons? He's got, He's got legs. He can do it. It's like he just like runs around in it and like you know he'll hit it. But it's like I mean, it's bad enough that she picks up the phone. And there's one of these fat centipedes, and I don't know much about like American culture, but like in Asia, the, the centipedes are like that. Especially the Japanese mukabi like centipede. They are massive and they are deadly. And then the fact that she moves the you know Casey's no. Cat comes in and goes, oh, it's a centipede, and whips out the pillow, and there's a whole nest of them going, like, oh, oh, God, that's oh, disgusting, that's yeah. That's not. Yeah. And also, for me, it's just like, well, that's an infestation. And obviously, after my obsession with the dust, I was looking for the next, like, stage of decay. And the thing is, is, like, <laughs> dust is that first layer of things that settle down. And we all know that yeah. dust is made of detritus. It's all dead skin and composing things. And what comes in when you have detritus? Detritivores, which are insects and things that wait, feed wait, off. Wait, 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 wait. You just said that, of course, all of us know it's made of detritus. I don't know what that is. You're just really smart. What is that? Detritus <laughs> is like the decomposing matter that kind of exists in everything. It's like it's the skin cells that fall off us. It's like when you make um, compost and you put all your your stuff in a compost bowl and it makes all the detritus, makes all the like decomposing yicky bits and the stuff you don't eat. And then all like the oh. and your bugs live in it and go, Ooh, num, 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 germs and... <laughs> Detritus. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But yeah, dead skin no, is detritus. <laughs> Dust is made of dead skin. Dead skin is detritus. Detritivores, creatures that like to eat dead stuff, come in. Uh -huh. And therefore, we know that there's something from the realms of death happening in this house because, you know, insects and in the next stages of rot. They come in and eat all the dead stuff. Yes. And it's. Uh, it's um, bugs are usually the first sign of a, pos uh, a demonic possession because uh, animals go crazy, then the bugs crawls in and they have their little nesties all around. They appear from nowhere and all bugs are uh, usually considered dirty. So they are usually linked to yes. demonic possession as something dirty because a demon is something dirty, staining your soul. And the visible link to the outside world are the, these infestations of little bugs all around waiting to have a banquet with your body like the demon is doing with your soul. And it's, all, and it's all layered upon, like, you've got the possession, you've got these bugs that come in that represent death and decay, and then obviously in the bigger picture, you've got all these demons moving into this city that they keep showing, like, sh shots of, and this city is a, is a dead and decaying area. That's why Thomas came there in the first place, to rejuvenate it, because it's, it's yeah. poor and it's just underfunded and it's rotting this particular part of the city and they're trying to build it. That's how the, they've got the whole homes for the homeless trying to yeah. rejuvenate it. So the bugs are the infestation just as the demons are infestating the city. Do we, maybe I'm stretching here, but do you think there was a, a real 
intentional choice behind choosing the centipede as the bug only i'm just spitballing here but like is there something deeper in the fact that like a centipede can become something beautiful later with being you know it is the centipede that turns into a butterfly right no, or that's, a caterpillar. No, that's a caterpillar <laughs> <laughs> i'll forgive you for not knowing about detritus and detritophores but centipedes <laughs> turning into butterflies now that's just silly. Come on, the hungry caterpillar. Every child <laughs> needs to see those the hungry caterpillar. I'm trying to stay on y'all's level. Y'all are so brilliant. <laughs> You're like dropping knowledge on the Iliad and detrita for us or whatever. I'm just <laughs> no, the centipede <laughs> is a little bit like the cockroach in the fact that it's quite long living, um, mm-hmm. but they're very aggressive, like buggers really they are very defensive and especially the asian ones are, the japanese one is the most deadly one in the world which is the red ones yeah and yeah. also the other thing is like they just basically i just every time i think of them i think of blast and scroots from harry potter so oh you know with the whole like weird, <laughs> that's what i think yeah, of yeah. like horribly legged exoskeleton things that fire <laughs> comes out at the end of <laughs> that's good I never would have put those two together, but that's brilliant. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad we were able to mention the that transition from the dust to the decay, you know, to that grosser, grosser, grosser yeah. element, which they, they do expertly well in this series. Um, well, if we have nothing more to talk about with, with those with that scene, we can get right into a biggie, which is, <laughs> again, I can only call it sweatpants and eggs, but it's much more than sweatpants and eggs scene. I mean, <laughs> it's just the visual, the visual that sticks out to me. <laughs> yeah. So what were um, our thoughts on that? What I'm, what I'm referring to, everybody listening, is a scene where Tomas is running in his sweatpants, he comes into his apartment, and lo and behold, Marcus has broken in because that's what he does, because he's a literal cat. What What are our thoughts? <laughs> and he's just like, you're out of eggs! And I'm like, and I don't know if this is a British thing, because I go a little bit hysterical if I ever run out of eggs, and if I do run out of eggs, then like my husband has to go to the store immediately, because it's not breakfast without eggs! <laughs> can't have breakfast without eggs! So what stuck out to us, uh, particularly of this scene, whether it's from a cinematograph- uh, cinematography standpoint or just the way that they were uh, interacting, you know, what is what is it about this scene that we, we chose to, to discuss? Very visually appealing with these very hot actors looking at each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I got a lot of that. Yeah, Most of my absolutely. notes are like, Marcus is so cute. <laughs> that's that's, that's yeah, deep, Zoe. That's so deep. <laughs> you may want to submit that to a peer review journal you know no, something not quite on the level of my detritus <laughs> review and what is so cute okay. look at that face <laughs> but yes, he is he's a very did. attractive man being very attractive <laughs> well i do have one and i cannot take credit for this this is something that was noticed by one of the fans on tumblr and i will give a complete shout out to her um to them their name is Crossroads Castiel, who noticed that there was a book that was put on that shelf uh, that Marcus leans up against, which, um, again, you think props-wise, you're like, there's nothing significant there. All they want are just some books in the background, right, while they're talking about these deeper things. But somebody put on the bookshelf uh, a novel called God Says No. It's a book by James Hanahan. And the uh, premise of this said novel is that a, a young Christian man goes to college and discovers that he is into men. Um, so it just it begs the question, is, is this something that's, oh, coincidental? They just put a book randomly that has to do with this, <laughs> this kind of yeah. uh, plot? Or yeah. is it more purposeful or, you know, what's a little wink at the audience? I don't know. 
I don't think they did anything in this show unintentionally. No, yes, indeed. And I think that book can be linked to what uh, Marcus will say uh, to Thomas uh, at the end of the episode about uh, uh, things inside the Bible being written by man and not by God. So God says no, but he's a man who says that. Oh, that's, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And it, it keeps me thinking about the fact that in Marcus's own character, he is one to constantly edit with quotes and redact the Bible itself, like actually drawing in it, drawing birds, drawing, you know, just because uh, the writer decided that Marcus is going to be this living embodiment of somebody who, who lives of God's will or what he thinks is God's will, as opposed to what man's words are in a book. Yes. Man's will is, um, I'm, I'm so glad you touched on that. I, I forgot. We, there's also, I have a clip uh, from this scene, if we wanted to hear it, where I think it's one that a lot of people enjoy in the first interaction between Tomas and Marcus. You can hear the music, which is a pretty awesome choice, too. We're out of eggs. How'd you get in here? Pick the lock? No, no. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> You were the one that came looking for me. <laughs> okay, this is basically that's basically the clip. But I have to. Oh, I chose to highlight it because you know the musical choice again is another common element that a lot of people fall in love with with the show. The interaction between them is just so it's serious at times, but then there's also this like this weird brotherliness music. This one, the yeah. like, <laughs> first time I met you was the actual, was one of the lines in the song, and you're like, cool. Yes, we're having a little bit of a romantic ballad going on. Um, I'm picking up on it. Then Marcus delivers that brilliant line that is just like, it's such a very English thing to say about don't get your knickers in a twist because I didn't bring you flowers. And I'm just like, oh, I love that line. We still say that in England. Yeah, yeah, it's so cute. I like how they interject like actual pieces of a British, you know, lexicon, you know, into these characters. Like, I think that's a big part of the, the loving thing that I love about these characters. The whole scene is very British. Uh, we start with the egg and we finish with the tea. Yes. <laughs> yes. Eggs and it's tea. Very you British. Nick is in a twist. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Let's go ahead and talk about the, the next big scene that we wanted to deep dive, which is called Casey and the Salesman and the Snappy Leg. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so was, the first time seeing it, you were just like, oh, holy, that's, yeah, that looks painful. It's gross, and they don't—they don't hold back with this visual. It's like snap, crackle, pop. Here, there's a leg that's broken. Nasty. Yeah. So I'm not saying the girl didn't deserve it, but like, I mean, that girl was being rough with like with Casey on that on that pitch. She was like, "Come on, something." And you just knew something was building. But did she yeah, deserve so that she level? Deserve I mean, she was a- <laughs> under any circumstances. But it was just like you just—you kept thinking to yourself, "Just leave her alone." Just leave her alone. Something bad is going to happen to you, bully girl. Just don't, just yeah. don't do it. But no, no, she could not read the atmosphere that we were all seeing in which like, you know, weird, creepy uncle turns up on the bench to wave at her. And you're just like, who is he? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, Indeed. 
but we are talking about demons. It's not like he was going to gently ask her to stop bullying Casey, right? We all knew something very bad was going to happen to her. It's not our fault if she was looking at the the scene from another point of view. Yeah. What's what's really amazing about that scene um, is okay. So you see that like. It's the salesman that's getting annoyed at this girl and he gets up and kind of exits the stage and exactly the same time as he exits the shot, Casey's face switches to that look of like, I'm going to get you. So it's just literally, it's exactly, it's like the shots are followed. He gets up, does not look happy about the situation, leaves the frame and then immediately Casey's whole facial expression and eyes change and he like, whatever that thing on the bench was, it's literally just got off the bench and walked straight into her because now she's possessed. And again, he looks so clean. He looks so dapper. He looks like just a... He's non-threatening. A friendly uncle type. Until yeah. it kind of slightly just starts shifting and you're like, wait a minute. I think the first clue that he was uh, not so good as we could think uh, was that Cat actually doesn't even look at him. He doesn't recognize him because he's not that. Right, yeah. right, right. That that would have been a, your first your first tip off to that. So right now we're talking about game night. This was where everybody is playing Jenga, uh, the the family members, and things devolve very quickly. So what are our thoughts there? Oh, that's when Angela knows there's a demon, and the demon knows that Angela knows. Yes, absolutely. They recognize each other. They recognize each other. I think uh, Angela may be just unconsciously for now, but uh, she recognized him. And we know the demon is there for her. So, of course, uh, he wants to be recognized by her. He's giving her all the clues to realize who he is. It's I, it's super. Yeah. I like that you're talking about this kind of like feeling of intimidation, this like the staring back and forth, and it reminds me that the focus. Maybe so you can talk a little bit more on this with with the camera angles on the eyes, and just you know when you when you talk about how animals in the jungle, like how they they show off power and intimidation, they're constantly like staring down on each other, and it feels like the director also chose to do that kind of focus of like look at this intensity where they're not saying anything, they're not you know throwing punches or anything but you can tell through those the, through those shots of the eyes that that something's about to go down yeah it's, it's a power play very yeah. much so and they frame it in such a way that basically they they tighten up the shot so much that it phases out anybody else and while they're all still probably there interacting it's these two characters are now trapped in that moment together both trying to suss the other one out and both trying to intimidate the other like one of them is like, I've got the knowledge of who you are. I can do something about it. And the other one's like, you can't do anything about it. I see you. I've got your daughter. You can't. And yeah, it's all about just phasing out anyone else and making those two characters face each other and try and power play each other. Um, well, awesome. The um, the next thing we're going to talk about is the, <laughs> again, another Zoeism right here. The Marcus Swagger. AKA the church scene where we first <laughs> see Marcus and uh, basically sniffing out Casey in the soup line. Um, 
<laughs> he does. He has a swagger. Like, also, I don't know where he appears from. There must be this magic, like, you can summon Marcus by saying his name. Because it's like, <laughs> Angela goes to steal the holy water. And she's like, doop, 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 doop. And Marcus is like, I see you doing that. I just appeared in a doorway. <laughs> and I'm just like... I wish Marcus would just appear in a doorway like that for me. I'm like, oh, hello. <laughs> and then he just kind of has his comfort. For a man who feels he's broken and not quite worthy and he's troubled and he's lost, he sure walks with, like, a confidence and a step and an approachability that makes him, like, also feel like a comfort to be around. And, I don't know, he's, he's just, he's got, he's got good body language and good motion. Right, and there's... there's- He's actually like leaning up against the door frame at one point, like in that scene, which is also he was wasn't he leaning up against the door frame when he was talking with Tomas too earlier in the egg scene? Yes. He just leans everywhere. Yes. This guy, man, like he just needs to stand up straight. <laughs> he knows he's sexy. Yeah, he's he's like, I like door frames. <laughs> I like That's exactly. I just want to put him around furniture. I want to take him to IKEA. Like, please, please lean in. Just <laughs> strike a pose, lean up against something. But but no, yeah. I think it's it's just also kind of this. You can tell he's seen the world. He's so comfortable with it that he's willing to just kind of lean up against it and let him let the world support him as well. That was that was a little bit of a stretch, I'll be honest. But <laughs> so in your face. Um, but yeah, so just you know the way that we talked a little bit about Angela stealing holy water like that in itself is a sin. Um, and the fact that Marcus yes. is even like helping her, he was like, "Hey." I just love that. I love that again. Yeah. Like he doesn't care about what the church says. He just lives by his own rules, God's rules. No, he he just uh, he knows that uh, to win a war against the demon, you cannot follow the rules. So he breaks them because he already learned that demons don't play fair. So why should he? I did. This kind of reminds us we're on the on the topic of like Marcus and the way that he his character just kind of exudes all this strength with depth and darkness. Somebody on Twitter asked us if we could talk a little bit about how masculinity is portrayed in this show and that it's okay to be someone that has these feelings, has these emotions. And I think like Marcus in every single scene I see him in, it's like, again, he's got this warrior strength to him, but he's also tender. Like even the way he's talking with Casey in that exact church scene, it's, it's gentle and it's, it's not abrasive. It's just, how are you doing? I think of Harper. How like, good morning, my duck, you know, just the way that he is. So there's like a, there's a tenderness there. He totally doesn't use his masculinity as a threat. Right. He uses it as a way to reassure. He is calming. He is nurturing. He is protective. He's charming and flirty as well. So you also, he makes you feel good and he never holds his body that's why he leans a lot he doesn't hold his body intense and in your face he relaxes it and by relaxing his body you know he's not a threat if he stood around with his arms crossed staring at you he'd be like this man is angry at me but he doesn't he's he doesn't want to impose but he wants to build trust yeah and he's also not afraid to cry because he does a lot of it and he's very deserves every one of those tears and that makes him even more like masculine and more like attractive and yeah. more just, just intriguing the character because, like there, there's more yeah. to masculinity than brute strength you know like you've got that 
that kindness, that depth. And, and, but then you have a contrast in like in the exact same scene that we're talking about in the church. You got demon guy who's the homeless guy who starts being very yes. aggressive and he has no qualms with just taking that guy like in this wrestling move. You remember where he's just like holding him. He's like, I'm going to escort yeah. you out because again, I am a badass. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't need to use that strength unless he has to. And that's, yes, yeah. The- yeah. And there's a lot of things that many men don't. Even because if he wanted, even if he wanted to impose, uh, it would sound fake. People who wants to play the macho part usually are not that strong. Marcus is. Marcus knows he is strong. Marcus knows he can fight. So why to show? to parade when uh, he's sure about himself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Also, if you're exactly. not confident in your own emotions and feelings and the places you've been, and you won't be physically strong because your ego will fracture far faster than your body will if you don't have the mental strength to, like, hold it all together. Absolutely. Ugh, again, like, I'm just fangirling way too hard over Marcus. Like, he's, like, the best character in history. So, <laughs> um, right, well, yeah, a little bit in love with him. Now, we are going to deep dive into this a little bit more in the writer's room section of this podcast, but we did want to mention a little bit the back alley tent scene where he is, uh, you know, attempting to confront that one demon in the female head on. Yeah, back to the, like, the orange and brown earth tones of, like... Kind of the colors of like when someone gets possessed, it's like you know that there is, you knew that there was going to be demons in this scene because of the color palette. Yeah. It's very much like going, wait, okay, yeah, the orange. Wait, is so, so wait, are you saying that the directors are like choosing those colors to purposefully like hint, hint at us like there could be demons coming whenever you see orange? Because, yeah, every time there's an actual demon, like because Gabriel's scenes the, in the first movie, all browns and oranges. Yeah. The beginning of this film with the, the film, the beginning of this episode with young Marcus, it's, it's orange and browns. Every time that someone has got a, is a fully possessed or there's a rotting actual demon, it switches to brown tones. Whenever it's showing the, the slow desolation of the city and like the poverty, it's all gray tones. And every time they're in the Rance's house, because it's cold and because the actual demon hasn't totally taken over, it's just the build up. It's all those gray tones as well. That's amazing. So do you think, why do you think those color choices, is there a reason behind it or is it more just as like, we're choosing these colors randomly as a signal, like the goals, this will be a signal to the audience. Like why? Grays, the gray tones is very much a color scheme you use if you want to show loneliness, dissolution, insecurity, because by the absence of color, you don't have anything to relate to. And because real life isn't that gray. Because when you say you're depressed, you're, you're, gray. it's gray. You talk about or blue. You're, a, kind, a of blue. you're kind of blue. You're kind of blue. You're kind of gray. Yeah. Yeah. It's those light gray tones, especially in horror films. It's always surrounded by loneliness. And also, gray is the absence. It's like, it's the absence of warmth. Yeah. So the house has got something supernatural moving into it and his family is struggling. You know, the mother is depressed. The father has had this traumatic injury. The daughters are like also like there's a lot of depression and worry and fear in that. And so there's the absence of light. Their world is cold and desolate at the moment. And therefore it's just greys. 
and demons are all coming from rot and decay. And while people think rot and decay wouldn't be colourful, it's one of the most colourful things because it's all it's all earth tones from the ground. It's all reds and oranges and browns that come from putrefaction and bile and the de- and decomposition. And so, very, and so whenever you see those colored things of orange, it just makes me think immediately of bile and wow. pus. And therefore, wow. every time I see a pus color yep. palette, I go, there's going to be a decaying, possessed person in this because demons are covered in all those pussy sores. Right now, let's discuss the dinner scene where she's finally putting the holy water into Casey's cup to test it out and see what goes on there. There's also a little wink-wink to the Exorcist movie fans as well. So <laughs> what can we talk about here? Uh, the most important thing of the Easter egg of the eating pea, pea soup. soup. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Like they're they're actually eating pea soup here. I love that they did that. I didn't see it on the first time watching. It was on the rewatch where we actually had to rewind it. I was like, stop, stop. I think something's green there. He's like, why do you care? Because it's pea soup. It was so amazing. <laughs> and then also it's just that heartbreaking moment for Angela when she puts her hand on the table and apologizes to oh, Kat yeah. and trying to get human contact with her daughter because she feels like she's losing her other daughter. She, she knows she made a mistake as a mother by and therefore she needs to apologize to Kat and she needs, she needs some comfort because she's lost and scared and one daughter's possessed and her husband's not quite there yet. So she's turning to the one person in the house that could give her warmth and affection and she's still not quite getting uh, it. Yeah, it's, it's tragic. It's really your heart breaks for, for yes. these people because you know what's happening. You see as an audience member, like she needs this affection. She needs some ver- validation that that things are going to be okay, but she's getting none of that from anybody. Um, and she's just, she's watching yes. her own daughter go through the exact same thing that she went through and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And in all of that, she's calling out the demon. In all of that, even if she's breaking inside, even if Cat uh, doesn't seem to understand what she is living and doesn't seem to want to forgive her for whatever Angela did to Cat, she's calling out the demon. She's openly challenging him, giving him holy water to drink. And she apologized to Kat because she's suffering, but she's not apologizing for calling out the demon. When Kat say, uh, are you uh, uh, apologizing for thinking I am the devil? Angela Hansfer, uh, I'm apologizing because you are suffering and I don't know how to help you. Yeah, that's, that was, that's such a, a, a vulnerable thing to do to apologize for um and it wasn't it wasn't for the demon i love that you're mentioning that it's not that she's apologizing for thinking that there's a demon in the house she knows there's a demon in the house but she's apologizing for she's she's empathizing she's empathizing with what you're going through your suffering and and i think part of us in our duty as fellow humans to each other um this is more of a personal belief is that we need to put ourselves into each other's places, whether they're having a really, really good time and they're feeling success, but we also need to be with them and empathize when they're also suffering that kind of, um, maybe it's the Catholic side of me, but to, to, to empathize and, and to displace yourself into an area of, of come, I can't really find the word, but being 
being with you in your time of darkness is is so powerful. And that's why I think, like, even this very beginning scene, they're going to make it. Like, this family dynamic is going to make it because they, they'll they be with each other, good times and bads, led, led by Angela's uh, love there. So I would like to point out that the whole episode is focused on uh, Catholic guilt. Everyone is guilt. It's feeling guilty yes. for something. Every single one. Yes. <laughs> Yes, no, that's that. I think that's exactly right. It's throughout the whole series. It's throughout like this feeling of shame and 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 there's doubt as well. There's um, you know, but but in the end, our our mission in this world is not to give in to that feeling of guilt. It's to triumph over it, be with each other through it, and say, okay, you know, we're not that bad. You know, we may have made some mistakes. <laughs> we messed up a few times, but. The purpose is to get over these kind of demons and, and this darkness. But absolutely, Guy, thanks for mentioning that. One last thing I wanted to say about that particular scene is the framing shots. Because there's a lot of shots through doorways that kind of cut off parts of the family. And the fact that they use these framing shots a lot in the episode to kind of show the distance between people. And also, in this particular scene by cutting off the view of the whole family, by only seeing them through doorways and very select angles, you get this very, this sense of claustrophobia and a sense of choking. And it's literally the shots are getting smaller and smaller. And as, as the demon's leash on the family is getting tighter and tighter. And so much of their world is being cut out and it's getting more and more focused. The shots get tighter to show just how much is little pocket uh-huh. that like Angela and Casey are, are in and the space that they have oh, to fight Oh my gosh. In. And that just like blows my mind because I'm thinking of the final scene of this season where she's in that hallway <laughs> and everything is so like itty bitty tight and claustrophobic. And I'm like, <gasps> And so, yeah, and then we go into the throwing up of the giant centipede. Oh, my gosh. That, thank you for bringing back the centipede. Oh, yes. That's one of the few things yes, I couldn't yes, look at. Yes, yes, it was at. so disgusting. I was, oh, because oh, it, okay. it looks, and even though it's CG, it looks very physical. Oh, it's all the choking motions that you know she's feeling it coming out of her. And I don't like <laughs> bugs. They're yeah. bloody awful. Horrible buggers. Absolute yeah. horrible buggers. I hate a lot of them. The insect kingdom is grim. <laughs> But Zoe, the so good, but, Zoe, but Zoe, the good thing is that they turn into butterflies. So why do you? <laughs> <laughs> the next scene like is centipedes. one that is just so huge for this whole episode. I think is the is the one where Marcus and this is is very rare. I think in in a network television show to give one character a literally three and a half minutes of pure monologue. And, and this is where Thomas, I'm talking about Thomas and Marcus in the scene together where he first goes into explaining a little bit of his own backstory to Thomas, where he's from. We get that now famous line from this episode of, um, uh, and, and actually I could, I'll play it right now, actually for us to. For the first time, they locked me in a room with a demon. I was 12 years old. You know, when you first saw that demon in the attic, Thomas. Were you scared? Yes. You know what I felt? Relief. Because for the first time in my brief, that very long life, I had a purpose. I was the gun. And the church was the hand, and the words were true. 
Oh my god. I'm <laughs> clutching my no. <laughs> clutching my chest. It's like, it's just in your heart. <laughs> it no, it he, he tears into your soul. So wait, what were your thoughts on this? I know you've got a lot. Oh. Well the fact that like gotta say, Ben Daniels performance in this scene is like yes. divine yes. in itself. Like this is a guy that can go from like touching to savage to to broken to just purely beautiful like so much emotion he's so raw and the fact is it's very rare to get a character that is so raw right at the beginning but he obviously clearly really wants to get through to Tomas he's seen something in Tomas that he needs to and he's like you know I'm just going to tell you this horrific life story of being seven and you know my father killing my mother and then being like an old boy school and being like a bully to being sold to being like abused as a child to facing demons and then the first time in his life he found strength and purpose was staring at pure evil and it just proves as we said before that all those other things that he went through weren't were were so much more horrific to him than the face of a demon and he found his strength knowing that he could be a weapon and yet he's so kind and gentle to be seen as just a weapon. Exactly. He's more so than a vessel, than but he constantly sees himself as just this vessel, you know, this empty pitcher, which I think he actually says in season two. But uh, the, that analogy himself the, that he uses where uh, I believe the exact words are the church, uh, the church was the hand, I was the gun and the, the words and the words were true. Gun. I think that's so interesting. When we were watching, rewatching, my husband okay. was like, why doesn't it say the words were the bullet? I'm like, I don't because it, it seems like it would make the whole analogy complete. Like they purposely went a different direction, saying the yeah. words were true. Like that truth is more powerful than the image of like a. Of a we we don't need a bullet because a gun. I mean, a gun is a weapon, and bullets are destructive. And the image is just too obviously like bang, shoot, something's dead and destroyed. When it comes to like faith, faith is more powerful than just killing things and destroying things faith is about saving things like so marcus feels like himself as a weapon he compares himself to a gun but he doesn't want to be out there oh, wow. destroying yeah. people killing them he wants to, he wants to yeah if you hold a gun to someone they will listen they will take note and you know they're not likely to just be like la 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 la, la. they will stop mm-hmm. and then they will listen so, I mean, think of every hostage like situation, like if you've got a gun, they don't even need to shoot a gun, don't need mm-hmm. to use a bullet to be heard. So he feels like that's what he is. He's going to walk up to these demons, be the weapon, be the gun, mm-hmm. but he's not going to shoot them. That's not his purpose. He wants to make them listen. And therefore the church then offers the words, which are the real truth. And therefore they will come in and they will save the situation. But he's the thing that goes in and, starts off as a threat um so our next scene we have is the final big one at the very end where we're back into the the streets with the young boy who has got the headphones on and is not aware that all this killing is going on around him and then boom he is then also murdered and we see that shot right into the poster of of the pope and i won't say it i'll let i'll let y'all talk a little bit about it i mean i always knew it as a translation of the speak of the devil and he shall arrive And the whole episode has been about various things arriving, like, you know, Marcus arrives fully into Tomas's life. The the salesman arrives in Casey's life. Um, 
you get the arrival of Maria into Angela's life. You get the arrival of there's more demons in this city. There's another infestation. And now you're like, there is something even bigger going to arrive. There's So is the devil literally going to arrive? And then it yeah. stops with this poster of the Pope. And you're like, <laughs> is the exactly Pope yeah. the devil? <laughs> like, I remember sitting there kind of going... Speak of the devil and he'll arrive. And then they just have this beautiful speech about, like, you know, finding faith and God. And then evil arrives. And then a big poster going, the Pope is coming. And you're like, oh. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Pope is coming. I'm yeah. like, wait, this yeah. is the opposite of a bad thing. Yeah. He's like the ultimate, yeah. you know, God connection. Why, why is this a big deal? But <laughs> he shot that well. Yeah. And I think the end... Uh... The ending scene is perfect because uh, it closes the circle of the whole narration of the episode. Uh, when you write an episode, you want your uh, your story is said in a circular way. So the beginning and the end must touch. If that doesn't happen, it means that you made a mistake in the way you wrote the episode. This one is perfect because during the whole episode, you are waiting for the arrival. And in the end, you see the poster and you understand who is going to arrive. I think the last shot you see is Marcus, the Marcus in the window. And he sussed out that something more is arriving. He sussed out that the demons are congregating for a reason. And he sees the thing of the Pope and he's like, I'm putting the pieces together and this is all happening for a reason. It's not just one possessed girl. That, that's, you know, these, these demons are after the Pope. So now we're starting our yeah. writer's room segment uh, where we go a little bit into the minds of the directors and writers and try to make some comparisons, uh, so make some critical discussions on their choices from a cinematic perspective, from a writer's standpoint. Um, particularly a biggie that stood out to us was the title itself. Loop. Oh, I'm not going to even say it correctly. Gaia, what is the title? And say the whole and do the whole quote, please, because you said it so beautifully. <laughs> Okay, the title is uh, the the whole sentence that gives the name to the episode is uh, "Lupus in fabula venit enim ad me," and uh, uh, it's a Latin way to say that uh, when you are talking, someone you are talking about is coming, so you stop talking. But it also means that uh, you lose your voice and the power to speak because you see the lupus, that means wolf, and because of the scare, you lose the power of speech. Uh, actually, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a way you can uh, turn the, the title uh, making it about Marcus, about the demons, or even about the Pope who is arriving. Because uh, when the demon sees uh, Marcus for the first time, he tells him, lupus in fabula, venit enim ad me. What does it mean? Does it mean that the demon was 
waiting for Marcus, knowing who Marcus is and who will be? Or does it mean that the demons thought that the young child would stop speaking because scared by the demon itself? Right, right. So it it has a few different translations or interpretations, I guess you could say, with how we want to really understand it. So is it is it talking specifically about the is it the Pope? Is that the one that you're going to appear? Like they constantly don't say his name, but they show images of him. You know, speak his name and he shall appear. Um, but you also see the demons are the you know the the, the demons the ones that are going to eventually appear. What what is this? thing that they continue to um, uh, talk about that we just don't, we don't know. And it creates, I think, a, a feeling of that, that fear and that, that, that the fearing of the unknown too. Like, I don't know what's about to happen. I don't know what they're referring to. And that puts me in a place of unease. And um, I don't know if they're doing that purposefully. What do you guys think? Yes. Absolutely. And they are using Latin. I would like to to connect what I'm going to say to what you just said, Tina. Uh, the fear of the unknown is one of the biggest fears for uh, Latin people. For ancient people, the unknown was the most terrifying things ever. So using Latin to point out this sense of uneasiness is uh, a masterpiece. Chapeau. Chapeau to the writers. We also had a, a segment here to talk a little bit of the, the vessel of nothing scene, the, the back alley uh, tent. We wanted to just really talk about this. This felt like this was a big anchor of the episode. So before we start, let's go ahead and hear, hear that clip and go from there. Yes. So it's true what they say. The power of Christ compels you. Do I look compelled, man of God? Mighty Marcus. The soul of nothing. All right. So, uh, that has so much in it from, you know, straight up going right up to a demon where the demon is doing that intimidation factor again. You've got the little bit of the resurgence of Zoe's famous dust. We have uh, just uh, <laughs> everything on, across the earth tones. I, you know, we also talked about Gaia. You had um, also mentioned that there's a, there's a deeper thing going on here with Marcus's own faith and how that's shaking up and, and connecting that to, to the footprints. Um, why don't you go ahead and start us off? What were your thoughts? Yes. I think the point of this whole scene was to point out that two things, actually. One, demons are communicating between them. And two, uh, it's all about, once again, is all about Marcus' crisis. Because um, we, we see how the demon reacts to his words, like they were empty words, like they were words told by a common man. 
but we know that Marcus is not a common man. So what happened to him? Did really God leave him alone now? Or is Marcus too wrapped in his self-loathing for losing Gabriel, who is not able to listen, to hear God, who is still there talking to him? Marcus is the example of the dying man speaking to Jesus, and they are on a beach, and the man turns, and uh, there are two sets of prints on the sand that at some point uh, turns into one only set. And the man tells Jesus, you left me alone in that moment. And Jesus answered him, no, I was scaring you in that moment. So I think right now, God is still talking to Marcus. God is still there for Marcus. But Marcus cannot hear him. So that is so fascinating to me because it brings about that theological question of, you know, when, what is it, what is our purpose in life? Are we continuously trying to hear God and he is talking to us, but we are choosing not to listen to his voice or we're just, you know, you know, our faith has been shaking so much that we've lost touch with how to listen. And I think Marcus is that man right now. Like you said, he's, he's, he's forgotten how, how to hear God's voice. And that's why you see the demon going, do I look, do I look compelled to you? Like he's lost his, his ability to exercise. And um, yeah, it's, it's, yes. it's something that I don't think anybody has the answer to when you're talking about being a spiritual person or li- trying to follow God's word, because, you know, who are we to, to, to think that we know what God is saying but that's our struggle. That's like our endless struggle. We have to continuously try to hear him or her. Marcus, I think, own. I think Marcus is getting in his own way at the moment. Like he's not opening himself up because he feels like he's failed. Yeah, he doesn't deserve. This to seems hear like God. a common theme for his character, even throughout season two, is that he doesn't ever feel worthy enough. He doesn't feel worthy of God's voice. He doesn't feel worthy of Thomas. He doesn't feel worthy. Um, enough to do I, I don't know what it is but he's just he's so down on himself all the time and you want to just be like no you're good and I'll, like he's the one screaming you're good you're valid and I want to scream at him in his face and be like you're good you're valid you're a love you're a child of God and it's like <laughs> yes yes you really want to do it when Marcus thinks so low about himself, you really want to scream in your face, you are loved, you are worthy. <laughs> you have people around you who yeah. loves you. But no, he is he's not listening right now. It's like God. It's like God right now. I can see this image <laughs> of God screaming at him. I'm here. I'm still here. Just listen to me, please. But no, no. He can't. Exactly. And then that leads us right into the final uh segment here in Writer's yeah. Room where we wanted to talk about uh, Marcus and Tomas as complements, contrasts to each other in this bigger picture, this bigger portrait that they're making for us in the series and uh, the way that they build each other up and how they kind of layer on top of each other. Um, 
in character wise and how they complete each other. So, uh, what what did we what have we noticed already so far in how they complete each other and build each other? It's the contradiction of someone who is innocent and naive and someone who is worldly and wise. And Marcus is worldly and wise, but he's lost a lot of his innocence and his naivety, and that's holding him back in some ways because he just can't can't see like that. At the same time, Tomas is so much more innocent and naive about the world, but therefore is missing some of the wisdom he needs. So they're both missing parts of themselves, but together they can fill that in. And also, you know, they can, yeah, together they can build yeah, definitely. what they're missing they, in each other. They have this kind of uh, connection with each other that I think they feel it as as characters. They feel that they need each other ultimately. Like there's something that Tomas sees in Marcus that's like, there's a there's a wisdom there, there's a strength there, and there's an experience there that he has no idea about, but he's intrigued. He's constantly, you know, looking to him as this person. You know, eventually at the end of the series, you also hear him see him say, like, I need you. He literally says to him, I, I, I need you to be a part of this with me. But Marcus, in turn, also needs him. Yeah, and Thomas has that line, line to Jessica where he says that there's this person yeah. that I shouldn't trust, but for some unknown reason, I just do. Like Tomas just knows that right. Marcus is somebody he should be listening to. Yes. But I think there's, and also on the reverse of that, Marcus looks to Tomas as something that he needs, a rejuvenation of, um, there, there's a, there's that innocence there of, of, you know, this world can be kind, the world can be generous. And he's got that little glint in his eye. And I think Marcus is, has had lost a little bit of that glint because he has seen yeah. so much darkness and and Tomas is still like everything is sunshine and roses and everything is awesome you know <laughs> he just doesn't he just doesn't know um yeah. Tomas is what Marcus always fought for in the world Tomas is a reminding Tomas is a reminding of what he always fought for he has lost his way, but looking at Tomas now, he can hopefully find his way back. Because Tomas is everything that is good and kind in the world and is everything that Marcus always wanted to protect. That is the, the need to love unconditionally and care for others and go out of your way and and go to dinner with somebody when they invite you over to their house and they say, there's a demon in my house. Like, okay, sure. I'll investigate it and just be, you know, I'll be my cute little self. And he does it without judgment. Um, so awesome. I think it was that the framing of that last scene, the way they film it. So they make so much of Thomas and Marcus's journey and the way they come together is not actually done with dialogue or if they're being, even being in the same room, that last bit in the apartment, they film it, to make it look like they're miles apart. They haven't found they haven't found this connection quite yet. They've seen something, but they haven't come together. They're not on the same page. And they film it in a way to make sure that you're aware there is distance between these two men yet. They still haven't found their common ground. They still haven't totally learned to trust each other. And Marcus senses that and recounts this horrific like toil of his youth. And through that slowly Thomas starts coming into the frame and eventually they both share that frame together and both realize that there is something special there. There is a bond and they are going to be on the same page and they will work together. 
Okay, so I just have the three. I have three Easter eggs, aka fun facts. <laughs> three. <laughs> Number one, because again, I am obsessive when looking into the behind the scenes stuff. So the first thing I found was that um, I think a lot of us already knew about this as fans, but it's just it's worth mentioning it because they mentioned it for the first time here. Uh, Marcus's backstory. So uh, the family backstory where his uh, dad was abusive to his mother and and then Marcus eventually as a young boy shoots him that was purely Ben Daniels's input they actually approached him with some questions like well how do you think this character should have been what what's some of his origin story and he came to him and then said well let's let's have him have this uh this really tragic past in addition to also building like where he was from Marcus's hometown is also where Ben Daniels is originally from and his taste of music, I think is also, it's called Northern soul music, which is also Ben Daniels' favorite thing. So they just like, I, I really appreciate how the writers are so open to feedback from other people outside of their, their little writer's room <laughs> to, to say, let's build this together. Um, and it comes off on the screen very well that you can tell that they're all <laughs> passionate about the character they've just created. The second Easter egg fun fact is that the tent scene that we just uh, discussed where they're um, with the demon in the alley. That was actually a late addition. It was something that they filmed the day before the episode was aired, which makes you think like, how do they even put that together in time to make sure that everything is edited right? And like just editing this podcast takes like hours. So <laughs> I don't know how they do an entire episode editing like the night of, but I could answer. Yeah. Go. Oh yeah. Gaia. Yeah. You work in. <laughs> I could answer that for you, Tina, Please. but then you probably, no, no. Then, then you probably <laughs> would cry. Yes, so, go ahead. Uh, no, so, uh, what happened during the filming of uh, a TV episode is this. You do it in one week. It doesn't matter what happened to you in that one week. You have one week to shoot the episode. Because during the, that one week, the writing team is writing the next episode. So you have one week. In one week, you shoot. You edit, and you have the, the damn thing ready. And there is no way you can be late. Because if you are late for one aspect of, uh, of your work, for example, if a writer is late, the director doesn't have anything to shoot. If the writer is late, the actors don't know what to say on screen. If the director is late, yeah. the editor doesn't have anything to edit. If, if an actor is late, everyone hates him. I, I can imagine the editor's face when the director told him, hey, 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 stop, stop editing. I had a, this great idea. We are going to shoot another <laughs> scene. And I can see the editor looking at the director like, are you, are you thinking, right? Tell me this is a joke. Tell me you are drunk right now. No, no, no. I'm serious. I'm going to shoot another scene. And this time the editor is probably looking around for a weapon. 
And then I've got just the final Easter egg fun fact is actually refers back to the first episode, the pilot episode that um, the Gabriel's character, he originally uh, was named Gabra and the whole thing took place not in Mexico, but in Ethiopia um, in Corado um, instead of in Mexico. So yeah. So those are my fun facts. So next segment is, Oh, the exorcist fandom. In keeping with the tradition, as in last episode, a shout out to the amazing exorcist congregation and fandom that has been so supportive of not only the show and the renewal for getting it all going, but also for this podcast. Like we are, uh, we were overwhelmed. I cannot even like, we were just talking a little while ago in the preparation for this, like shaking with excitement with how much everybody was tweeting and Facebooking and sending us messages of just like supporting this little podcast that we didn't think anyone was going to listen to. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then then Terry on the cake, Ben Daniels listened to it. Ben Daniels tweeted your thing and listened to it. I was like, are you on crack? Like, are you sure that is? (laughs) 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 Very nice comment about apples. so so weird for me to think that they're listening to our like little fan ramble and but but very much appreciative and thankful to ben daniels too and all the fans for just being so kind and so supportive that's it it means more than you know you have no idea yeah um and then also we wanted to let everybody know that we are welcome and would like for you to write us in if you have any questions or fan theories um, that have anything that you would like us to talk about in these upcoming episodes. We would love to, love to, love to discuss your own theories. So you can join us on our Facebook group, um, Devils in the Details. You can find us. You can tweet us any of our handles, Pandora the Explorer. Zoe is Let Zoe Spoil You. Uh, Gaia on Tumblr is HerbLoved82. This is also in the description of our uh, podcast as well. But contact us. We'd love to hear from you. And, um, and that's that. And then... F- Finally, a uh, shout out to, we wanted to start this segment like pretty as a part of a tradition of like highlighting at least one or two uh, exorcist congregants in the fandom every time. And we were talking beforehand, just wanted to say a big shout out to um, a couple of key ones. One is she's on Twitter. Her handle is at hand and here we go. Uh, but her name is Jessie and she's done fantastic work of not only blogging about the show, but like, I think somebody wrote on Twitter the other day, like, it's like herding cats trying to get <laughs> the Exorcist fans to actually do a Twitterthon for renewing the Exorcist, hashtag renew the Exorcist. And she's like a big part of that. <laughs> and then I think Zoe, you had mentioned somebody else uh, in the fandom you want to shout out to? Aid the Exorcist. Yes. That on, on Twitter. Yes, that aid a lot of, the Exorcist. Yeah, aid the re-blogging Exorcist. for the Renew the Exorcist. Uh, just, again, huge thank you to you. Yeah. And um, yeah, we're just, like so enamored by everybody and it's a nice little family to be a part of thank you well guys that's it that's our show so yeah. thank you for listening thank and you. we are out of here Woo! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got it. Woo! Okay.